This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Kava and Ledin. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Shrem, and you are listening and watching Untold Stories, where twice a week together, we get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders and really truly understand how this movement came to be. And what I'm really learning is, is I'm constantly being asked where we're going uh, all the time. Just this morning, someone asked me, where are we going with NFTs? Where's the next investment in that? Where, where do we go from here? And what I have to do, and truly why this show is phenomenal for everyone, is I just go back in time and I think about the transitions between certain waves that we've had in the past, 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015. And you really can get so much great information little tidbits, informational arbitrage, uh, and to really learn like where we're going. Uh, we're very I'm honored and we're very fortunate today to have someone who's very good at that. His name is Jason Les. Jason, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories today. Thank you for having me, Charlie. You are the CEO of Riot Blockchain and, and Riot launched in 2017. But uh, in 2018, you're the first NASDAQ listed company that focuses exclusively on Bitcoin and blockchain-based companies. I remember when I had first heard about Riot, I was just saying to myself, what do they do? And someone had told me, oh, well, Bitcoin mining. And this was actually, this is a perfect example. I said to myself very quietly, I said, ah, maybe this is the future of where Bitcoin mining is going to go. Because this 27 is a very long time ago. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe we're going to go towards the publicly traded companies route. And fast forward, when they said the institutions are coming, that's where the first institutions actually went was towards Bitcoin mining, Riot blockchain. Are we now in like the, the golden era, do you think, of, of Bitcoin mining? Uh, yeah, well, for, for a number of reasons. Um, you know, for, first off, I just wanted to note, I, I don't know, you probably don't remember, but I used to hop on uh, the Whalepool TeamSpeak with you like oh way God. back in the day with Flibber and those guys. Um, so it, it's cool for me to be on the podcast, you know, talking to you now. You're bringing back memories, yeah, a lot of memories, actually. I used to sit on that team speak. Sorry, I used to sit on that when I was on house arrest and I couldn't leave my house. I would sit on that whale pool team speak with all those guys just like listening. And my wife, my girlfriend at the time, but now my wife was like, what is that? And that was that was the real time. What is going on in Bitcoin? Yeah, yeah, it, it was cool. That's an awesome community. So wait, we were, we were talking about the golden age of Bitcoin mining yeah. institute. Yeah. So um, that's interesting that you had that thought back then that like if this was going to be the future of Bitcoin mining or institutional adoption. And I think it really is for a number of reasons, or I should say it has been for a number of reasons. Um, first and foremost, you and I know Bitcoin isn't easy for a lot of people to use in custody. Um, it's kind of intimidating. A lot of people want to buy Bitcoin. They maybe don't feel great about holding it on Coinbase. Um, so there are certain types of investors that want to just buy traditional financial products like stocks. And what's the, the void that Riot and other publicly traded Bitcoin miners has filled is investors who want to buy a stock that can, that can serve as a proxy to Bitcoin mining, or I'm sorry, serve as a proxy to Bitcoin. Bitcoin mining is kind of a, a great vehicle for that because all we do is mine Bitcoin. So our financial results, you know, tend to be correlated with the price of Bitcoin because um, that that uh, that's the underlying asset that that we're mining. So that is uh, you know drives 
what at least the dollar based revenue that we have. And so as investors have shown interest in publicly traded companies like Riot, we've seen a bunch of other players to enter the market. Um, it, it's starting to become difficult to keep track of all the publicly traded miners out yeah, there's there. There's maybe like a dozen or you've seen BitcoinTreasuries.com, I think, and you can actually yeah. see most of the Bitcoin. There's dozens now. There's dozens. In fact, someone could make money just buying the, the tokens of the publicly traded companies like hybrid stocks and token type things like that could be a portfolio in and of itself. Yeah. And you're just talking about the ones that are out there now. There are so many more that are in the works. You know, there's um, just I think it was last week. One had um, company had a special meeting to approve their um, a, a DSPAC. And then I think later this month, a reverse uh, a, a merger is being approved. Um, companies like Core Scientific announced that they are yeah. uh, going public via SPAC at the end of the year. So there is so much. HUD 8 recently too? HUD, yeah, well, HUD 8's been publicly traded. They just became listed on NASDAQ recently. Uh, a bunch of other uh, Canadian companies, HUD 8, Hive, BitForms, all you know came forward to NASDAQ earlier uh, this year over this summer. So you know, I think by the start of 2022, there's going to be like 20 publicly traded miners or something. It's really getting uh, really getting interesting. And what these companies see, they see the investor interest and they see these public markets as a very efficient access to capital. If you're a publicly traded company, if you have a liquid stock, uh, it is it is a lot easier for you to raise capital than it would be for a private company. So that is key because that's really the, the name of the game in a lot of ways in Bitcoin mining. There's hardware up hardware upgrade cycles that come. Uh, if you want to grow your hash rate, you need to raise capital and buy a bunch of miners from Bitmain or MicroBT, Canon, or all the any of the new uh, competitors that are, are coming out there in that space. So what you have now is all these publicly traded companies coming forward or already come forward, raising capital being the public markets and deploying that capital to grow the Bitcoin mining operations. And what I think is especially cool about that, which is part of what Riot's mission is, is because all of this activity has happened in the United States and North America, we're seeing a huge growth of mining in North America. That's, I think, a real positive outcome to what we're, what's going on here. Um, you, you touched on it being the golden age for Bitcoin mining. I think it is for a number of reasons. For this reason, for the uh, increased amount of public companies in uh, Bitcoin mining, but also obviously the exodus of mining from China that caused a huge difficulty drop, which has been a boon for miners all over the world, uh, particularly those in North America, I think. And you combine that with all this capital being deployed here, North America, the United States is really coming on the map in Bitcoin mining, which is great because one smooths out the decentralization of Bitcoin mining a lot more instead of 50 to 70 percent of mining being in China. And I think it's important that the underlying infrastructure for Bitcoin, um, for the Bitcoin network mining, is geographically located near where a lot of adoption is. There's so much adoption of Bitcoin in the United States from both individuals, from businesses, institutions. And historically, there hasn't been a whole ton of that mining infrastructure here. And now we have that. So now we have North America, United States is a bigger presence in the Bitcoin consensus system. I heard that the one of the largest Chinese Bitcoin communities outside of China is now in Austin, Texas. I, I believe it. It's crazy. I've heard a lot of stories about companies it's like moving uh, people too, not just the equipment, the people that, and that was what I was nervous about too. I was like, oh, thousands of jobs by the, 
you know, fr mutual friends of ours not going to be able to work anymore in China, but they're actually coming over too. And it's not, is it, is it a hundred percent North America? Like, you know, you look at the old remittance at, uh, maps was, is it like hundred percent China, North America, where in North America is it actually happening? Uh, well, I, I think, you know, miners leaving China, they're kind of distributing all over the place. Obviously, Kazakhstan is a real natural choice for miners leaving uh, China because it is just closer, easier to get to. Um, it does have very competitive energy costs. So a lot of mining going to Kazakhstan. Very interesting. Such a small country is now becoming right. such a significant part of the, the Bitcoin uh, mining network. But yeah, a lot coming to the United States and specifically Texas. And I think there's one driving reason for that. Texas is a business-friendly state. Texas is a Bitcoin-friendly state. You have you have up to the, the governor's office, Governor Abbott coming out and saying, we want to make Texas a Bitcoin mining mecca. So for all the Chinese miners that just had the complete rug pull over in China, you know, jurisdictional risk is top of mind. What percent of the ha of the Bitcoin hash rate dropped off in like one week's time? It was like a significant, like 30% or something like that, right? In a week, yeah, I think overall the drop was more like fifty percent that took place over the month. It was that's not an attack. We were attacked this year by China. Why is no one talking about that? That is a de facto attack against Bitcoin. We have always talked about how do you attack yeah. Bitcoin? You ban mining. It's one of the only ways. If this was not an attack, I don't know what was. How resilient is Bitcoin that it's coming back so quickly? Yeah, this doesn't get enough credit. This is a real bullish thing that happened. I you know. You know, for years, the criticism of Bitcoin is, oh, there's so much mining in China. This is such a security weakness, et cetera, et cetera. We just, we just destroy that FUD in like a month this summer. No one talks about it. It's so Bitcoin true. is resilient like that. The network is resilient. This hash rate uh, can move. It doesn't, you, you don't need 100% of the hash rate online for the network to drive forward. Blocks come a little bit slower yes. for the next difficulty adjustment, and then we move on. The system was designed for this type of event. What I'm what I'm also learning what I'm also learning about uh, uh, Texas too is that because because the energy grid and this was just because of the way America was built, the energy grid just in Texas is kind of a standalone, not connected to the rest of American by by significant means power grid. It needs it almost needs Bitcoin mining. It needs Bitcoin mining because there's no other way to load balance. From what I'm understanding. And I'm not a Bitcoin mining aficionado at all. No, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, I think Texas has a great energy market. It has an ideal energy market. Um, the, the, the energy market in Texas is known as ERCOT. And like you said, it's an island of energy. It doesn't connect in the, uh, to other states, really. It's 90% of Texas is connected to this ERCOT grid. And it is a deregulated energy market. There's not politicians driving uh, generation uh, choices, generation approval, distribution, pricing, you know, like we have in California, which we have incredibly high energy costs. Um, Texas took the deregulated approach. And through the market that's been created there, there has been this real abundance of renewable sources like solar and wind uh, being constructed there. First and foremost, Texas just in, is environmentally ideal. I mean, there's Texas has more uh, wind turbines than any other state in the, in the country. Um, because of the environment, it's very ideal for solar. So there's so much of that renewable infrastructure that's been built and has been uh, is in queue to be built going forward. And because those sources are intermittent and 
you know, somewhat unpredictable. You need loads like Bitcoin mining to help balance that. You need loads like Bitcoin miner, miners to be the buyers of energy of last resort in any location, who then also have the flexibility to shut down when power comes in higher demand. So what I, what I tell people is Bitcoin miners in Texas, they don't have necessarily this you know, explicit contract agreement on how they are going to interact with generation sources. But through that open and free market, there's this kind of implicit um, relationship that happens where we are all just following market forces. When the price of energy is low, Bitcoin miners are going after that. When the price of energy rises because demand is high and supply is limited, then you know Bitcoin miners tend to not be buying that energy more. And oftentimes it's selling the energy they had back to the grid. This helps stabilize the grid and this helps make the grid you know, more robust. I, um, with what happened in Texas with that winter storm in February and you know what yeah. often hap- happens in the summer, I get a lot of people reaching out. Well, hey, aren't Bitcoin miners just bought, taking away all this energy? That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. So what do you answer to them? Not, not at all. Um, because and, yeah. we, we're, miners are so sensitive to the price of energy. We can't afford to be buying energy when it is super expensive. So let's let's talk about that February winter storm because that's one of the, the key examples that comes to mind. Energy prices were shooting up to nine thousand dollars a megawatt hour. Bitcoin mining is not profitable at nine thousand dollars a megawatt hour. Okay, so it, it, you're just out. You know you cannot be mining that. So if you did not have low power prices secured by way of a power purchase agreement or some other mechanism, you just were not mining. You were just shut down. Now, if you did have that power secured, like, you know, for example, uh, Riot's Windstone facility, uh, we did not own Windstone at the time. Uh, We bought them, uh, that transaction closed in May, but they have a long-term power purchase agreement, which means they are taking or paying for power for... um, yeah. Over the course of 10 years, no matter what, they've taken that risk to secure power. Bitcoin miners can do that because we know we're going to be buying energy. Well, all that's a good thing because the, the local infrastructure there can use that guarantee of a contract to in, reinvest into the local infrastructure there. So that's absolutely. why it's a benefit. It creates a good market. That that You're absolutely right. So that's a one huge benefit on that end. Then the other end, so we've secured that power and... When events like that February freeze happen, miners, if they secure the power, it is in their best economic self-interest to sell that power back to the grid. So what you have here is a lot of power. Yeah, you make make more money than you would Bitcoin mining at. You got certain prices, especially the 9,000 a megawatt hour. Yeah, right. It becomes an energy broker. That's what what do we do now? We don't mine Bitcoin. We just broker energy in Texas. Well, what I tell people is Riot and, you know, it's a subsidiary like Winstone operate like a virtual power plant. You know, that power, okay, maybe Winstone didn't generate that power, but it owns that power because it bought it. And like you touched on, Charlie, the infrastructure, you know, could, could be built and um, there's, there's economic growth that happens around miners securing those huge blocks of power. So that power is now available. And when power is in, low, in high demand and low supply, miners can sell that power back to the grid. And that's what helps stabilize the grid. There's no, there's no denying that, that the world is changing temperatures and things like that. But I've been, I feel like I've been lied to my whole life from the environmentalist side, but also like the anti side. I've never learned what that, that perfect balance 
that perfect balance is. And one of the things that I was told was that energy is finite. If Bitcoin miners are taking it, then the hospitals are not getting it. That's even before Bitcoin would even existed as a kid, you'd hear all these, these negative things that we well, need to use the energy for, for better things. But how is that not true? Because we've literally had power generation sources, executives on this show telling me that as soon as you generate that energy from, well, it's coming from the ground, natural gas, or every doing it water, it's, it degrades immediately. So the farther that energy has to go and the longer it takes to get there, it's not worth it anymore. It degrades almost immediately to a point where having the Bitcoin mining on the sites where the power is actually generated is generated matters so much. It is, where am I wrong on that? You're, you're absolutely right. Energy is lost in all sorts of ways. It is generated and there's no one to buy it. It gets lost in transmission. All the time, uh, every day. It, it is staggering. One third of all the energy that is generated globally is wasted. Okay, it does not get used. Isn't that crazy? Why are we not focusing on capturing that as opposed to like, hey, we need to get rid of gas cars by 2025 to all electric cars. Meanwhile, electric cars generate more fossil fuels than gas cars probably do, you know, just how they're built. I don't understand where we went wrong in society. Yeah, uh, it's, a, um, it, it, it's a great point. It's very puzzling. You know, we should be trying to capture and resolve inefficiencies, not, you know, drive them further forward. Um, humankind, the human race, the world has benefited so much. Quality of life, um, duration of life has improved dramatically as society has used more and more energy over time. You know, it's just very clear. Energy has provided a higher quality of life. So our, our goal should not be to use less energy. Our goal should not be to you know, try to move back in time. I think our goal as a society should just, like we're talking about, become more efficient. Use things like Bitcoin mining and other loads out there to identify lost energy and um, you know, capture that. One third of global energy that is produced is um, just completely wasted and unused. And Bitcoin mining helps solve that problem. I wanted to congratulate our sponsor, Kava, because Circle chose the Kava platform as one of their newest blockchains and protocols they're gonna be launching USDC on. Traditionally, USDC has only been on Ethereum and one or two other chains like Tron, but now there's a bunch of other blockchains. The Kava platform is one of them, and you can access all of those super cool DeFi high yield opportunities that are on the Kava platform now with USDC, which we know and love. So check them out at untoldstories.link forward slash Kava. And congratulations, guys. Having Circle choose y'all as the top blockchain for USDC to be launched on is a big freaking deal. Today's show is brought to you by our newest sponsor, Ledin.io, a better home for your Bitcoin. And they are amazing. They're secure, simple, and such an easy to use platform for managing and growing your digital wealth. You can earn interest on your Bitcoin and your USDC with some of the industry's best rates, 6.1% APY on your first two Bitcoin and 9% APY on your USDC. You can use your Bitcoin as collateral with their lead-in loans to get quick access to dollars or to double your Bitcoin savings with their popular B2X loan. If it sounds too good to be true, 
It's not because they've partnered with Armanino LLP to provide proof of reserve attestations. That means in a few simple clicks, you can log in and you can verify your assets on Ledin are fully accounted for. And this is truly first in class transparency and accountability. And I'm excited to get to the meat of the of, of what we're talking about here. We're giving $50 away in free Bitcoin to everyone. All you got to do is go to untoldstories.link forward slash L-E-D-N. And we're giving $50 to anyone who goes on and creates a new loan. And that can literally pay for your interest in the first half of the year, depending on the size of your loan. It's an interest-free loan. Why not? Might as well do it, right? Untoldstories.link forward slash Ledin. Thank you guys for being amazing. I think Satoshi needs to be given like the Nobel Peace Prize for for saving the world on an, on the environment. Or and, and actually, I, I, people have already talked about giving it to him for economics. You know, now yeah. he's going to get it for energy too. He's racking up a good amount of awards. Well, if you think about it, that that it, it not only stabilizes grids because it allows you to build microgrids. Because what you can do is you can say, okay, we have the middle of nowhere tundra. You know, even on even in space, one day. We want to build power generation sources. Yeah, we can build 100 homes on whatever planet it is or even Earth, right? Let's just say it's here in the middle of the tundra. But if you're going to build a generate, you know, a power generation plant, you need that other balance when, when the times that you don't need all that energy that you're generating, you can't predict how much gas is coming out of the ground. Flaring, you know, you see the, you see the cell phone tower looking things that have gas, you know, in the old Iraq desert storm movies, you know, uh, that's all just burning energy. It's just wasting energy. And th- that, that is a tragedy. And, and you know, for, uh, you know, to use the age-old phrase, Bitcoin fixes this, you know, yeah. especially with the, <laughs> the, the flare mitigation stuff, the companies like um, Great American Mining and um, Prusa, et cetera, that are attacking that opportunity. It, 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 is, it is amazing the positive impact that Bitcoin mining can have and the good energy prices they can drive for themselves of doing that. And I, I, to me, it's also, it's not just about capturing these energy, um, fixing these energy inefficiencies but, inefficiencies, but there's a lot of job creation and infrastructure development that happens around this as well. Um, and I think a great example of that is our Windstone facility out in Rockdale, Texas. Rockdale, it's about an hour uh, outside of Austin uh, to the oh, north on cool. the way, way to Waco. It was a huge town uh, going back to the 50s. Uh, there, it was um, the site of a. Um, they they were generating uh, power there, but that was being geared towards an aluminum smelting plant that existed there, owned by Alcoa. Huge plant, great massive. for the environment, by the way, right? <laughs> great, great for the environment. The, 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 this this facility was employing thousands of people. In 2008, they went out of business. So this whole kind of remote community of Rockdale was really hurt hard. One of those communities where this you know this one. Um, business, this one industry was driving so much of the economy around there. And they went out of business. That's really tough for the town. Um, that, that, that hit them hard. And Bitcoin miners, so Winstone came in and they're just looking for the cheapest energy. They don't care where it is. They'll build them. We can build Bitcoin mining facilities wherever. And that will, was their goal. So they found this community. They found a community that was welcoming uh, that wanted to work with them and that they felt they could give back to. And that is where they built this facility. So Winstone is now um, the single largest Bitcoin mining facility in North America if you develop, if you measure by um, developed power capacity. They created about 125 jobs there from doing that. And they're just getting started. You know, we are, we, we are growing that facility in a really big way. We have 
development plans underway right now that's over doubling the, the power uh, infrastructure there. So that Bitcoin miners are not only coming in and solving, I think, these energy inefficiencies, but they're also creating these jobs in communities that need them too. I think that that's a story that doesn't get told enough because a lot of times people think about Bitcoin mining as just like guys are just throwing 10,000 computers in a warehouse, turning them on and walking out. But if you really want to build this infrastructure, high quality, large scale, and you really want to maintain it, you need a lot of talented people on the ground working on that. Where are we headed in terms of innovation in this space? Because we've seen the industrialization of mining. We've seen the high capitalization, billions and billions of dollars flowing into it. We see software. I had a gentleman on, on our show, and I'm blanking. I'm going to have to fill it in in the editing process. But we had him <laughs> on the show, and he runs software that I think Core Scientific uses that allows Bitcoin miners to have more transparency. Oh, why am I forgetting? When it comes to, to, to voting on, on software and things like that, I'm forgetting it's, it's you know, because we, we talked about if Satoshi would be against mining pools nowadays. And we're dispelling some of the FUD on, on mining pools. But how is, is the software being changed? Where is the innovation headed now in, in the space? Well, I think a key point uh, of innovation right, right here, right now, is with Stratum V2. Stratum V2 is another type of uh, mining pool protocol. And so historically with mining pools, with, with Stratum uh, V1 right now, miners like Riot, so we participate in a mining pool. That mining pool... Uh, they put together the block template. They select the transactions. Uh, if there is any type of signaling going on for any type of upgrade or otherwise, they are making that decision. So they come up with these work shares and they just send them to miners like Riot. And yeah. um, we do the work and, you know, turn it back when we have successful shares, you know, so on and so forth. So we don't have any optics into what's going on with the transaction selection process. But do you want it? Do you want those in case, what if there was your ideological like me, what if there was a potential fork? How would you, at what point do the riot shareholders, is it you who makes that decision? Is it the pool? What happens there? Yeah, that, that, that would be, um, that would be a tough one. Um, if, if you're talking about something like 2017 happening yeah. again, where, you know, deciding between signaling for uh, BIP 148 or, um, you know, Segwit 2X or whatever it Segwit was. 2X or all of it. I mean, that it would be, it would be very interesting to see that situation play out today with all, all sorts of Bitcoin miners. I think, um, I think for a public traded company, it's the, it's the job of the officers of that company to I decide agree, what's yeah. in the best interest of the shareholders. And uh, I think if they choose wrong, then they're going to have shareholders to, to answer to. Um, I, so I am. Um, I'm not too concerned about that. I think you know. I, I think you know. I know. I think Riot would make the right decision, and I think uh, there's a lot of other good people out there that would that would make the right decision around that kind of uh, voting mechanism. Yeah. But with regards to at least transaction selection, you know, that is becoming a bit more questionable when you look at stuff like what's going on with this infrastructure bill, where they want to define brokers as people are processing um, any type of transaction and uh, reporting on that. So, you know, as, as mining pools work now, I don't really think miners fall into that because, you know, miners like Riot, we don't, we have no visibility into what the transactions are. We are actually not involved in transactions whatsoever. We're doing proof of work. You know, the mining pool is doing transaction uh, selection 
verifying transactions and coming up with block templates. Minders like Riot, who are part of a pool, all we are doing is work. So if we were using Stratum V2 and we started selecting our own transactions, then that becomes maybe a bit of a challenge from a regulatory standpoint. I am optimistic that that language and that um, whole type of provision can be worked out, you know, if, if that bill does pass. Yeah, but well. I don't want to rely. I'm sorry for inter- interrupting you. Um, no, no. What were you going to say? The passage. Sorry. I, I was just going to say, you know, I'm optimistic that this stuff can be clarified after the, this bill is passed because, you know, it's very unfair and unreasonable right now. I don't want to rely on that. I don't. No. I don't want to rely on the gov- on, on, yeah, please, government, make the laws good for us. That's not why we're here. Mm-hmm. How do we make this technology guarantee our sovereignty? That's why I'm here. How do mm-hmm. we make the technology of Bitcoin prevent anyone from actually being involved in the transaction selection process? Because you and I know that's where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. You're going to have blacklists. You're going to have miners. There will always be those mining pools and those miners that, that, that will allow all transactions to take place. But we're going to get into a world, and it's a scary world, where you're going to have transaction selection and blacklist and whitelisting. And before we get to a point where I feel like, and do you tell me for long, because I'm just a podcaster. I mean, you're <laughs> the CEO. You're on the front lines, so you know better. But I, this is scaring me now. We need to build the technology up now so we can never be in a place where we can say to the government, yeah, we can select transactions. Or am I, should I not be scared about this at all? Uh, no, I, I think that type of regulatory risk, it, it, I think, is very top of mind. I, I think for, for anyone in the Bitcoin industry, not just Bitcoin miners, we're all thinking about the regulatory risk and, and what can happen. Uh, and the more and more government attention we have on Bitcoin, the more and more real that becomes. I think that that type of whitelisting and blacklisting ultimately just fails because of the way Bitcoin was designed. Like you said, there's always going to be some mining pool out there that is, you know, in another country because Bitcoin has no borders that is not subject to those type of um, uh, requirements or restrictions. And it's just going to, you know, try to be collecting transaction fees. And data so, can be encrypted. True. The transactions won't go through those mining pools anymore that, that have blacklisting. Oh, good point. So, I mean, it, you know, ultimately, that, that type of law, that type of regulation just kind of puts miners subject to that at a competitive disadvantage because, the way Bitcoin works, those transactions are going to be processed anyways. You were, a, you were a professional poker player way back when. And in fact, we did some, it just goes to show you the, the awesome researchers here at Untold Stories. There was a, a man versus machine at Carnegie Mellon University that was trying to be the, the world's best poker artificial intelligence. And you were one of like the human benchmarks for that. Uh, that that's kind of cool. What was that like? Yeah, that was awesome. So I became, um, I, I played poker for about 14 years. Um, that was my uh, professional focus. And through doing that, I became one of the best heads up, no limit players in the world. So heads up meaning one-on-one poker. That's where me. I fail at too. When I'm in the last two, two me with someone else in the end, I can't, there's a, it's a whole different game heads up. It, it is. I, I really feel like it's the purest form of poker and it's the most fun because, you know, you're playing every hand. It's not like you're worrying about other players at the table. You're playing yeah. every hand. And I think that makes the game a lot more interesting because bluffing becomes more and more important and not getting bluffed becomes more and more important. So um, became one of the best in, in the world at that form of poker. And through doing that, I had the opportunity to participate in this man versus machine challenge at Carnegie Mellon. 
they had been working on artificial intelligence for years within the academic community. They had this annual competition where different um, groups would have their AIs compete against each other. Carnegie Mellon, they, they built one. They started to feel they had, a, they had an opportunity that uh, they could take on the best humans in the world. So in 2015, we did this challenge uh, playing uh, me and uh, three other top professionals uh, did a challenge in um, Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, playing this AI. We played just all day, every day for like three weeks. It, it was super grueling. And the human team was successful in that. But it, it was an awesome experience. Um, you know, you, you think of things like, um, you know, Deep Blue versus um, Gary Kasparov and yeah. like, type of historical events where it's man versus AI for dominance in a given game or area. And it was super cool to be a part of that. Like we felt like we were representing humanity and we were fighting back against the computers by doing this and showing that our, our skill set was so strong that not even artificial intelligence was at our level yet. Well, and um, yeah. And so the human team was successful. And then we did a rematch in 2017 Um they came, Carnegie Mellon came back and they said, hey, we got um, we, we have a new version. We'd like to redo this challenge. And they just absolutely stomped us. The, the, the improvements were substantial. It was it was almost scary how how much the artificial intelligence had improved. And, you know, not long after that, I was like, you know what, I'm kind of I'm just going to focus on Bitcoin now. <laughs> what is it about? Tell me about Heads Up Poker in terms of um, what are some like top three things you need to know you're going into it? What should I be thinking about? How should I be playing? Uh, and we may be sitting across the table together. One yeah. Day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, you know, uh, I, I think I kind of touched on it already. With heads up, it's very important to, you, it's not like a full table where you can tend to do, you know, okay by just waiting for good hands. You know, okay, you need to be bluffing and such as well, but you're generally not playing that many hands. You're, you know, in some positions, you're maybe playing, you know, 12, 14% of hands only. Uh, for, for opening and um, with heads up, you know, you're, 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 you're opening like 80, 90% of hands. I'm, I'm not sure what strategy oh, so you really should be folding just like one out of 10 in heads up. Right. So you're, you're playing, you're, you're playing a ton of hands. So, and, and your opponent is too. So what ultimately ends up happening is it's not about these good hands and big hand versus big hand. It's about fighting for all these small pots. It's about bluffing and taking away all these small parts spots, chipping away over and over again at your opponent. And then on the other side of that token, it's all about you not being bluffed yourself. You want it to be, um, you, you want to have a balanced strategy such that you aren't being exploited by your opponents like that. So it's to me, I, I, I think the key answer to your question is bluffing, not being bluffed, and fighting for these small pots and not just focusing on the big ones. I feel like it's a good lesson that you've taken from the poker table to apply it to, to real life. No, yeah. Poker isn't real life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think a lot of the skill set in poker, a lot of the skills you learn in poker are really important to being successful at all areas of life. It's, you know, and so for this first example, fighting for the small pots, not giving up and only focusing on the big things. But I, I think a, a really key thing that um, poker teaches you is strategic thinking, game theory, understanding unpredictable outcomes and being comfortable with um, the, the decisions not always working out the way you planned, but understanding that doesn't mean that they were wrong. We live in a world of uncertainty. We don't know what the future is. Yeah. All we can do is make the best decision with the information we have right now. 
I struggle with uh, with PTSD, and and one of the the biggest issues is is be, is every day becoming comfortable with with the uncomfortable, the unknown. And um, poker has been really helpful to that, like for exactly what you said, because you're when you're playing it. And what I what we do is we play like twenty dollar unlimited buy in type games where it's like not huge amounts of money, but you never have to. You can always keep playing and everything, um, and it keeps it fun and friendly when we play at our crypto versus Hollywood game. But it allowed me to like become comfortable with that uncomfort, with that. Hey, you're gonna make the best decision, but it may not have the outcome that you want. So you got to trust yourself because you have to keep making those same decisions over and over again. It follows it through. It's very very nice. Yeah. And what's important is you don't want to start making poor decisions because you're being results oriented about something working out. You know, uh, you see, you, you, you know, in, in poker, oh, you know, just sometimes you get in kings versus aces. That, that's all it is. Right. You, you cannot avoid that. You're not folding kings. If someone has aces, that's what it is. But that that happens too much to someone over and over again. They might start to think like, oh, wow, these kings are no good. Uh, this is an extreme example. I hope no one's really ever thinking this, but you know, p- people might start to think like, oh, I, I can't be playing pocket kings anymore. Like I'm always just running the aces. You, you can't let the pre- poor side of variance influence your decision. If you are making good decisions, then, and you are making those with correct information, you're analyzing that information correctly. That's what's most important. You can use the outcome to maybe take a look at your process and maybe find flaws, but it's, it's very important in poker that you don't let the downside of variance just completely destroy what you know about a good strategy being. That's actually how I lost. I lost last month because I was just killing it, the best cards constantly. And I, my cards were so good that the good players that were playing were losing to me because they were playing the right way. They were, I, I shouldn't have ha- been having all those good cards. But then he said, one of them, my friend, he's like, the tide's going to change and Charlie's going to keep playing the way he's playing. And he was right. The tide mm-hmm. changed and I kept playing as if I, and I was very predictable And that. So you have to play consistently in the good times and the bad times, because then you'll become predictable, I guess. And it's actually perfect with trading, bull and bear markets, Bitcoin, the, the, the lessons that you learn perfectly weaves together. Yeah. And especially, you know, being comfortable with volatility, even if you're really good at poker, you know, yeah. you're losing like a lot, like. You have, if you're a very winning player, you're still likely having a losing session 40, 45% of the time. And you go on downswing. You could be playing very well, but hitting the, you know, like I said, the wrong side of variance, and you, you could be losing pretty regularly. So when you're used to that type of variance in your results in poker, it makes the kind of the, the variance, the volatility with Bitcoin a lot easier to stomach. You know, it, Bitcoin goes on massive moves, and that's for for people. I, I think in traditional finance, financial markets, or people what they're used to in variance, this is huge. Okay, and I'm, I'm not trying to say it's not, but once you become more experienced with this type of volatility, and once you become more comfortable with it, it doesn't kind of goes into what you're saying. It, it, it doesn't take away from your bottom line thesis. You know, I believe Bitcoin is the future of finance. I believe it is the future of money and store value and the way commerce will be conducted and the way people will store their wealth. And it doesn't matter to me if the price goes up or down, whatever percent, that thesis does not change. I could not have said it better myself. Jason Les, thank you so much for taking the time. CEO of Riot Blockchain, one of the, the actually the first publicly traded on NASDAQ. All right, my awesome. friend, thank you. I'll see you soon. At the end of September, beginning of October in our next 
crypto versus Hollywood tournament, poker tournament. So I'll see you later. Let's do it. Thanks, Charlie.